the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. It happens to be Juneteenth. We're going to spend some time explaining what that is and why it's not just black history. It's American history. It's the culmination of the Civil War and what was supposed to be the outcome. So we'll talk more about that later in the program. Also, for those of you who listen in the first hour, we're going to share a conversation with Anne-Marie Hancock, our interview of the week on keeping parents safe in their nursing home. And we'll also share a conversation I had with Joe DiCarlo, the global uh, ambassador with Medical Teams International on World Refugee Day that's coming up tomorrow. We'll also share some uh, some of the lighter side of the news in the 5 o'clock hour. And we'll talk about what can and cannot be done in Multnomah County. Now that we have been set free and we're in phase one, it's a limited freedom, but you get the idea. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. Senator Tim Scott has uh, pressed back after Senator Dick Durbin referred to him as a token. Now, Senator Tim Scott happens to be African-American. He's also a Republican. And as uh, the former vice president indicated, you cannot oppose him. You cannot be a Republican. You cannot be a whole list of things and still be considered black. Well, Guy Benson pointed out that... um, uh, Mr. Durbin was being rather subtle, tongue-in-cheek. Well, Scott's response, not surprising, that last uh, the last 24 hours have seen a lot of token, boy, or you're being used in my mentions. He tweeted on the 10th of June. Let me get this straight. You don't want the person who has faced racial profiling by police, been pulled over dozens of times, we're talking about a sitting U.S. senator, or been speaking out for years drafting this legislation? We'll leave it hanging there. Well, the national polls show Joe Biden with a strong lead. The average in real clear politics has the former vice president up 8.5 points. But the um, uh, the background state number um, numbers show a much tighter race from Axios, all with Biden up, but all competitive. Uh, Hugh Hewitt says this has got a greatly alarm um, sentient Democrats greatly after a pandemic 24-7 barrage of anti-real Donald Trump media this is not what they were expecting especially with a nominee confined to the basement and unable to do a press conference Rasmussen sees the margins very similar to the 2016 cycle where all the national polling showed Hillary Clinton with strong margins albeit this time the polling shows less variation and his complaining about the polls Trump has a point well the view from outside the beltway a landslide election. Politico says interviews with more than 50 state, district, and county Republican Party chairs depict a version of the electoral landscape that is no worse for Trump than six months ago, and possibly even slightly better. According to this view, the coronavirus is uh, on its way out and the economy is coming back. Polls are unreliable. Joe Biden is too frail to last. The media still doesn't get it. The more uh, bad things happen in the country, it just solidifies support for Trump. A quote from Philip Stevens, GOP chairman of the Robeson County, North Carolina group. This year, Stevens says, we're thinking landslide. Well, only the actual election will tell the tale. Well, CNN in a column or in a story imagined there's no police. 
according to CNN, the hope is that stronger infrastructure in the absence of traditional law enforcement that many in the movement believe unfairly targets African-Americans but also protects African-Americans will reduce crime and deaths at the hands of police. But there's no precedent for a a police-free U.S. or at least a U.S. where the role of police is limited. Now, it's interesting to me, we are supposed to believe that if you eliminate the police, that somehow there is going to be a transformation of our sin nature and people will just naturally resort to good behavior and there will be no necessity for police. Burglaries and rapes and theft and uh, all kinds of crime, murder and assault, there's all just simply going to melt away because there won't be police to enforce the law. Ed Morrissey responds, let's stop right there because this is sheer nonsense. The role of police in the U.S. is limited and always has been limited. In the video from CNN, Alex um, Vitali points out that in some situations we may need violence workers, violence workers, which one might I don't know, call police. Morrissey again says violence workers, police are violence workers, only in the same sense that spouses would be sex workers. Police are not violence workers, but they do have recourse to limit uses of uh, force to restore peace and enforce the law. I hope you're praying for this constitutional republic. Well, Cornell Law students, or plural, law students, are boycotting a professor exposed as being not a Nazi, not a murderer, but a conservative The Washington Free Beacon reports that in an open letter posted to Facebook on Monday and which is now circulating among Cornell law students and faculty members, the group is pressing members and student allies to avoid Jacobson's classes. As the course uh, selection uh, period approaches, we encourage our membership and our allies to reconsider studying under an individual whose views perpetuate hatred toward their fellow students. Uh, Translated, he's a conservative. And yes, they're pressing for him to be fired. We only want one point of view, apparently. Philip Nitschke, an Australian living in uh, Jordan, uh, Amsterdam, has created a sleek-looking device that will make euthanasia fast and easy. The Sarco, short for sarcophagus, is a spaceship-like pod that can efficiently terminate a human life. The Economist points out it uses nitrogen to enact a pain-free, peaceful death from inert gas asphyxiation at the touch of a button. This is what we call advancement. With the help of his wife and colleague, the writer and lawyer, Dr. Fiona Stewart-Nitschke, is ushering the death-on-demand movement towards a dramatic new milestone, and their uh, euthanasian uh, is palpable. This euthanasian uh, is shared by the author of the piece. Sarko, meanwhile, is positively Instagrammable, a sleek conveyance that wouldn't um, uh, look out of uh, place in a Tesla showroom. Again, God Help us, and I mean that uh, sincerely. Meanwhile, the president, uh, following his defeat on Thursday at the Supreme Court in his quest to repeal the Obamacare Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, called for new justices as conservatives, took aim at Chief Justice John Roberts for what they called a pattern of siding with the liberal wing in key decisions. The recent Supreme Court decisions, not only on DACA, sanctuary cities, census, and others, tell you only one thing. We need new justices of the Supreme Court. If the radical left Democrats assume power, your Second Amendment, right to life, secure borders, and religious liberty, among many other things, are over and gone, the president tweeted. The president went on to promise that he will release a new list of conservative Supreme Court justice nominees, which may include some or many of those already on the list by the 1st of September later this year. Meanwhile, Senator Amy Klobuchar announced Thursday she was removing herself as a candidate to be the running mate of presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, which one might assume this is a noble act on her part to make room for an African-American. She said a woman of color should be chosen for the ticket. 
Now, if you look behind the scenes, however, Klobuchar was um, not on that list any longer for reasons uh, that she can attribute to herself. The president is touting nearly $1 billion in U.S. infrastructure plans, a proposal that includes American roads, bridges, and other infrastructure being eyed for sorely needed funding boosts, according to a series of Twitter messages from the president last night. The president messages uh, listed 20 states uh, being set up uh, to divvy up the $1 billion in federal dollars and um, much of the money being directed to state transportation departments and port operators. On this day in history, 1865, Union troops arrive in Galveston, Texas, with news that the Civil War is over and that all remaining slaves in Texas are free. The event is celebrated to this day as Juneteenth, largely on the East Coast or in the South, but not so much on the West Coast. That's changing, however. We'll talk more about that in our next segment. 1934, the Federal Communications Commission is created. It replaces the Federal Radio Commission. 1952, the U.S. Army Special Forces, the elite unit of fighters known as the Green Berets, is established at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 1953, Julius Rosenberg, 35, and his wife, Ethel, 37, are convicted of conspiring to pass U.S. atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. They're executed at Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York. 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is approved after surviving a lengthy filibuster in the U.S. Senate. 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down a Louisiana law requiring any public school teaching the theory of evolution to teach creation science as well. 2017, Otto Warmbier, a 22-year-old American college student, dies in Cincinnati Hospital following his release by North Korea in a coma after more than a year in captivity. And finally, 2018, General Electric, the last remaining original member, is dropped from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about Juneteenth, what it is, and why it's being observed. By the way, Multnomah County Entered phase one today. We have a modicum of freedom. We'll tell you more later in the program about what that means, what's reopening and what's not. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Juneteenth. That's what today is. It's been recognized primarily in Texas and some areas uh, back east in the south. But Juneteenth might now be getting the recognition it has deserved. It's not just African-American history. It is American history. And it reflects what happened at the close of the Civil War. Well, Juneteenth marks the day in 1865 when people held as slaves in Texas finally learned that the abhorrent practice had ended two years previously when President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Up to that point, it did not apply to them. The proclamation freed all persons held as slaves in the states that had rebelled against the Union, and Texas was one of them. To understand how it took more than two years for slaves in Texas to learn they were free, Alveda King writes that you have to know a little bit of history about the Lone Star State. Before Texas was a state, it was ruled by Spain and later by Mexico. Both governments encouraged the freeing of slaves, but in the 1820s, when slave owners from the southern states began migrating to Texas to grow cotton, the number of slaves began to grow. When Texas won its independence from Mexico in 1836, slavery was written into the new republic's constitution. 1845, when Texas was annexed to the U.S., there were some 30,000 slaves in the state. By 1850, that number had jumped to more than 50,000. Ten years later, the slave population numbered more than 180,000 distinct individuals, all of whom reflected the Mago Day, who had a future and a purpose that was being 
um, stalled by slavery. Well, in 1845, then Texas was annexed to the United States. There were some 30,000 slaves in the state. By 1850, the number had jumped to more than 50,000, and again, uh, 180,000 10 years later. Well, Texas seceded from the Union in 1861 and joined the Confederacy. At that point, almost one quarter of Texas families owned at least one slave. Well, following the Emancipation Proclamation, Southern slaveholders began moving their human captives into Texas, where few Union soldiers were stationed and the proclamation could be ignored. Well, that changed on the 19th of June. 1865, when Major General Gordon Granger and 2,000 Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, and they declared all slaves free by reading this proclamation, and I quote, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. That involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. Now, that was an ambitious statement. It wasn't realized at that time. Jim Crow replaced uh, slavery, and uh, the answer to or the that statement being brought to fruition has been postponed many, many years. Well, a year later, Juneteenth celebrations began across Texas and eventually would pop up in other parts of the South. The civil rights movement in the 1950s and the 60s spread awareness of the holiday or the day. In April of 68, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in the midst of planning the Poor People's Campaign, which was a culmination uh, in a peaceful march in Washington, D.C. to call on the government to address the housing and employment needs of all indigent, indigent people of the nation. The campaign continued after his death, and the Poor People's March took place on Juneteenth. People from all over the country gathered in our nation's capital that day, and when they left, many of them took a newfound knowledge of and respect for the day. Celebrations began springing up in other parts of the country. It was uh, celebrated primarily and is a holiday in Texas, but again, spread across the country. Texas declared Juneteenth an official state holiday in 1980, and now 46 states in the District of Columbia have some kind of observance. Texas declared Juneteenth an official state holiday in 1980, and now 46 states and the districts of Columbia have observances, but somehow the holiday remained a well-kept secret. Janet Marana, executive director of Priests for Life, was a New York City public school teacher in an urban school, and even she had never heard of Juneteenth until... um, Uh, sometime later when the civil rights for the unborn in 2003 became an issue. That year, things, uh, or rather this year, things have changed. With the Black Lives Matter protests, President Trump's campaign inadvertently scheduled uh, his first post-pandemic rally on the 19th. When some black leaders asked him to change the date, the president did so. Now Juneteenth is on the national radar, and that's a good thing. All of us can stand uh, to brush up on our history, and this date is too important to be forgotten. Some major companies like the NFL and Nike are making, uh, making it a formal holiday. And as you know, in the city of Portland, or rather in the state of Oregon, uh, Mayor Brown is uh, suggesting that it become an annual state holiday. She announced her intention to introduce a bill before the legislature in 2021 that would um, make that an annual state holiday. That designation would presumably make commemoration of June 19th, the day of in 1865, uh, a paid holiday for all state workers. Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kafori declared Juneteenth a paid holiday for county workers last week, and Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler followed suit for city employees. I appreciated a, an article in uh, Christianity Today. I'm, I have to say I um, lament uh, much of what Christianity Today represents 
today as it has uh, taken a decidedly left turn in terms of its publication. But I appreciated an article that you may want to look up um, to understand Juneteenth isn't just a political declaration, but it was the culmination. It was the answer to centuries of prayer. And the article is rather lengthy. It was written by Eric Washington, but it goes through some of that history. And while I have just a few minutes, I want to share a little bit of that with you. Uh, the first celebration of, June t- of Juneteenth began at the same courthouse in Galveston on the same date where, one year before, enslaved peoples in Texas learned that the war was over and that they were now free. On these same steps, Union Major General Gordon Granger read the, the, the proclamation. On this day, June 19, 1866, the Emancipation Proclamation was read out loud, and then those gathered, they progressed to the Methodist Episcopal South, now Um, Chapel AME Church, Reedy Chapel AME Church, for a public prayer meeting. And while history didn't record the prayers from that gathering, that the event itself happened is noteworthy. Public prayer meetings by African Americans were rare during slavery, and though independent African American churches in the South existed during the antebellum period, the majority of enslaved African Americans worshipped alongside the people who enslaved them. Slave owners on plantations and farms presided over church services that served their own oppressive purposes. They uh, insisted that preachers interpret sections of scripture that would support their position as slave owners. But enslaved African Americans, on the other hand, practiced their faith in organized secret meetings at these invisible institutions, as renowned African American religious historian uh, Albert Rapito later called them. Enslaved communities could sing their own songs, preach their own sermons, pray their own prayers, and pray they did. These meetings were continual acts of resistance against slaveholders' power and slaveholders' belief that they had to use Christianity to make slaves obedient. These meetings also signified the links that enslaved people went to care for their own souls and the souls of their fellow yoked persons. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. You can find it at Christianity Today online. It goes into much uh, detail. It uh, recalls some of these specific prayers and so on. Uh, but this um, uh, this occasion in which first the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, and some time later, uh, Juneteenth, when slaves in Texas, many of whom had come from other states uh, following the end of the war, learned that they were legally free, although in many cases not technically free. You have the system in which uh, farmers um, uh, maintain the system of of slavery uh, under freedom, if you will, with uh, farmers who didn't own their own land and were... Uh, indebted to their slaveholders in some kind of a financial, and I don't have time to go into all of that, but in a financial arrangement uh, that kept them essentially doing the same work that they had already done. All of that said, uh, this movement, this freedom was the result not only of the outcome of a civil war, but the outcome of uh, many, many years of prayer uh, from those who were enslaved, not to mention the abolitionists who were also involved in making it politically possible. So Juneteenth is the day, and it may, in fact, in the state of Oregon, become a holiday. Coming up, we're going to hear a conversation with Anne-Marie Hancock on keeping parents safe if they're in a nursing home. What are some of the things you need to ask about? And she also offers some advice on how to relate to, um, to your elders uh, when they're going through a, a, a difficult season uh, with regard to their health. And we'll share a conversation with Joe DiCarlo, Global Ambassador with Medical Teams International, on World Refugee Day. That's coming up tomorrow. And then at the 5 o'clock hour, we'll take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. And we'll look at what we can and cannot do in Multnomah County now that we have entered Phase 1. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back with Anne-Marie Hancock in a moment. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Across our country, a growing number of elderly people residing in nursing homes, as we know, have died from COVID-19 exposure since the shutdown was ordered. In New York, for example, 5,433 and growing, a number of elderly long-term care facility residents were reported dead. Well, this came after the governor ordered uh, such service centers to admit COVID-19 patients. Well, this bears the uh, question to any of us who have loved ones in care facilities are concerned that that might be uh, necessary at some point in the future. Are my elderly loved ones safe? Well, Anne-Marie Hancock is the author of You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Own Funeral, where she chronicles caring for her own mother, who was diagnosed with cancer, and along the way, what she learned about nursing homes and stay-at-home caregiving. She understands what's important when our loved ones need a long-term care facility and the kinds of questions uh, that need to be asked. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Georgine. This is lovely. And so happy to talk about such a timely topic, one that uh, we will all face one day and many are facing right as we speak. Absolutely. Whether or not there's a pandemic, there are some questions that need to be fundamental questions that need to be asked. And it certainly applies um, perhaps uh, with greater uh, pressure under these circumstances. But when we're considering a, a loved one who is in a care facility, a nursing home, what are some of the things that need to be uh, considered or asked to determine whether or not the loved one is being properly cared for under this very extraordinary circumstance? Well, one, you certainly want to do your homework on the facility. And uh, many of the facilities are particularly challenged now. You want to know, one, that they're financially sound. Uh, You want to investigate and feel comfortable asking about staff and their hours and whether they have enough staff, if they're stressed, because we all know that uh, nursing homes, uh, people come, people go. Uh, It's a challenging operation Mm -hmm. uh, to keep people. Uh, You want to know what the recreational opportunities are. You want to know how they're handling meals and social distancing. All of these things are extremely important. You also want to know uh, how they are spiritually and emotionally enriching these people, many of them who are very fearful Uh, many at the end of their lives or their journeys, and uh, obviously they have a lot of fear inside them, and you want them because we love them to be secure and to be safe. Uh, Obviously, COVID has changed the social distancing situation as regards uh, taking our elderly to church, uh, card games and bridge games and uh, social activities, whether it's yoga and their uh, gathering, uh, all of these things, are they being eliminated? What are you doing to socially enrich my mother, my sister? What are you doing spiritually? You have to know about meals. You have to know about staff. And I'm going to go back to it. Make sure the facility is financially sound. We made a decision I should, I should say my mom made a decision. Uh, she wanted to be at home. 
and we had invited her to come and live with us. We have plenty of space out on the river, and she said, no, um, I want to be independent. I love Archie Bunker. I love Archie Bunker. I like my Notre Dame football. I want to watch what I want to watch, and I want to do it when I want to do it. Uh, so obviously that posed a challenge because uh, in a home where there are uh, several siblings, everybody can pitch in. But the task fell to my husband and I, who was um, executor and trustee, and um, I walked away from everything that I was doing and decided this was way too important not to commit. And we all know, Georgine, that love is not convenient. It is That's the middle right. of the night, it's the afternoon, it's not when you feel like it or uh, when it's convenient for you. It's like having a baby. The babies don't cry just uh, two to four. They cry sometimes all night. They have colic. And the same applies to our elderly loved ones. Um, when you're dealing with cancer and so many of these uh, terminal issues, uh, the pain could come at every, any hour. So for my husband and I, we kept mom in her home, and I would just run over each day, spend the better part of it, and run back and forth between my home and her home. And obviously a lot of considerations there, a lot of lessons there, a lot of lessons. I'd had a healing ministry that was international. It took me all over the world for several years. I had spent a great deal of time with terminally ill children uh, and adults and uh, watching, being with them, uh, till the end of life. And so I thought I was particularly prepared to deal with uh, my mom. And I was to learn that I was a novice. Every mm. person, of course, is different. Yes. And my mother is a very complex person, and she's Irish, and very determined, and very uh, she's very much in control. And so a cancer diagnosis was quite a shock to her. She had a a little dot on her forehead inside of four months uh, that took the top of her head, the side of her face, cracked her spine, and uh, gave her a terminal diagnosis. And uh, she had great difficulty with this. And I had to learn some new tools. That's what I'm saying Georgine. And we all, whether it's COVID or uh, nursing home or dealing with our loved ones in their own home or your home, there are so many lessons that are extremely important. For me, at the top of the list in my entire life has been God. I believe that faith is true confidence, and I have so much faith. And it has always served me beautifully. But as I pointed out, I had new lessons to learn. Yes, Underneath is a sense of humor. You have got to be able to laugh at yourself and laugh at life. You have got to be able and put yourself in a situation where you are not taking criticism personally. 
it is imperative that you realize you are not walking the walk. It is not your journey. And for me, it was my mother's journey. And I had to remind myself constantly to be loving, uplifting, helpful, and hopeful. And at the top of that, not to take things personally. Um, When you are going through uh, the process, the dying process, and it's a grieving process, um, it's very challenging for the person walking that walk. And you will see personality transformations. Um, I used the example one day, and I mentioned it in the You Can't Drive Your Car to Your Own Funeral. We were going down Charter Colony in Virginia, and all of a sudden, Mom yelled that I, you're a moron. And um, I said, excuse me, Mama what? You're a moron, Ann. And uh, I pulled the car quietly, calmly, to the side of the road. And I said, Mom, listen, we're Irish. And a couple of years ago, I spent time in Ireland researching our family name. While it's spelled M-O-R-A-N, it's pronounced moron. <laughs> We're a whole family of morons. <laughs> and I found when I was able to do that, Georgine, that I could get a smile from her, and it kind of cut through the tension and the stress. And I know that my mom doesn't really feel that. She was stressed, and she knew that we were supposed to be going to another doctor. She was frustrated. She's terrified. And so out comes, and to the person she's most comfortable with, right, family. You know, we're we're our authentic selves with family. And so it's, Anne, you're a moron. And um, and then there were other things very similar to that. Well, and I tell you what, we're go- we're out of time. Um, we need more time for a conversation. So I'm going to ask my producer to contact you and see if we can schedule another opportunity to have a longer conversation. Uh, but once again, I want to mention to our listeners the book that you're referencing. You can't drive your car to your own funeral. Anne Marie Hancock. We will continue this conversation on another occasion, and I look forward to that. Thank you, Georgine. This has been lovely. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon, and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. This Saturday is. World Refugee Day. Medical Teams International is joining voices around the world in marking World Refugee Day this Saturday, the 20th, a day to acknowledge the strength and perseverance of approximately 50 million refugees worldwide. Think about that, 50 million refugees worldwide. Well, the threat of COVID-19 has uh, uh, increased the urgency and the need for compassionate action worldwide and to help us appreciate that and to tell us what we can do about it is Joe DiCarlo. He is a global ambassador for Medical Teams International, someone I have had a, a tremendous admiration for for many years, and I'm just honored to have you on the program today. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Georgina. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, as I mentioned, Saturday is World Refugee Day. Explain what the day is and what it represents. Yes. Um, Well, first of all, I just want to say that um, this is an important time. 
because we are seeing more and more not only refugee but displaced populations around the world. As a matter of fact, at the end of 2019, there were 79.5 million displaced and refugee populations. So there are people who cross the border in order to get their lives safe, to be safe from violence, but also many, many millions are displaced within their own country. So the numbers uh, are alarming, and they have been increasing every year for the last 10 years. Mm. Now, distinguish um, the difference between, because we're, we're talking a lot in our country about immigration, and people tend to bristle with the use of that word. Define what a refugee is. As you pointed out, they may be displaced within their own countries or have uh, been forced by violence or other reasons to cross, into, uh, cross the borders into other countries. Dis- define what a refugee is um, for the purposes of World Refugee Day. Yes, I, I think the best way uh, to define uh, what a refugee is is by listening to the stories of the refugees themselves. Um, I met a woman by the name of Esther in northern Uganda. And Esther said to me, um, my husband came to me um, and told me that the bullets are getting too close to our house. Esther, I want you to take a suitcase and I want you to go to the border in, into, into Uganda. She lives with her husband in the town of Ye in South Sudan. Esther told me that she walked for three days in order mm. to get to the border. And, and as she walked and as she got closer to the border, she became increasingly frightened and agitated because when she saw the soldiers on the South Sudanese side, she didn't know if they were rebels. She didn't know if they were government soldiers. She didn't know what was going to happen to her. And she said to me, Joe, I cried out to God, God, please help me. And she got through the border. And when she got to the Uganda side, there was medical teams. Because we are there in order to provide health care for um, every refugee that crosses. We do a health check. And if we find someone that crosses who uh, has an emergency need, they're immediately brought to the emergency center for care. But as it happened, Esther, after three days of walking and all that she went through, she was nine months pregnant. And we immediately brought her into the maternity ward where she uh, had a beautiful baby boy. And Georgine, when I sat there with her maybe a day or two later after this baby was born, I said, Esther, uh, what are you going to name your baby? And she said, I'm not sure, but I think I may call him Abel because God is able. Mm. Now, Esther is a representative of millions and millions, primarily women, who are refugees, and they demonstrate strength and faith and perseverance to provide a better life, to be safe and to provide a better life for their children. There is a wonderful poem, a very powerful poem, uh, by a, a refugee woman by the name of Warsan Shire from Somalia. And the title of the poem is Home. And this gives us a really solid picture of what what it is to be a refugee. Just a few verses of this long poem state, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. Mm. 
preference when I sit with Syrian refugees in Lebanon or or uh, South Sudanese refugees in Uganda, the preference is to go home, to go back to their life that they had, to go back to school, go back to their communities, go back to their churches. Um, they don't. They're not leaving for economic advantage or benefit. They're leaving because home won't let them stay. Yeah, yeah. What what um, challenge has COVID nineteen presented in trying to help those who are displaced? I can't even imagine. We're struggling here with you know. We just heard that we all have to wear face masks in most counties after the twenty fourth. What are some of the COVID nineteen challenges? that I, I can't even imagine under these circumstances you've described. Yes. Well, think about um, what we, we are asked to do. We are to wear masks. We are to uh, relate with one another uh, in a socially distant uh, manner. And then think of a refugee camp. Um, where medical teams is working in Bangladesh, there are 600,000 people in this camp where hand washing may be a luxury. You know, where uh, social distancing will be a real, a real challenge. And if COVID-19 would happen to make its way in to a refugee camp, it could easily spread. And, and we are praying that the Lord will just protect these camps and keep COVID out uh, because uh, there's a real threat there. Uh, in, in Bangladesh, in, um, in the, a place called Kutapalang refugee camp, there are 600,000 people, and we're serving 100,000, providing mm. health care. We have been asked by UNHCR, the UN agency that manages refugees, to uh, transition one of our clinics into a COVID isolation and treatment center. And we have successfully done that, and it's a 50-bed center. Fortunately, I say fortunately, we only have three people uh, being treated right now at this time. And uh, a fourth one was there and was released and, uh, because uh, he recovered. But more and more testing is taking place in the refugee camps. And and the fear is that there'll be more and more positive cases. So mm. COVID is a real challenge in the camps. But let me just tell you something that I'm very excited about. Um, I'm excited about the fact that the way Medical Teams is, is working with the faith communities in those camps uh, in order to provide assistance and added muscle to health messaging. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, a pastor that I know, his name is Emac Jackson. He's a refugee in Tanzania, and um, he took a church of 500 people in the refugee camp. Uh, he has been a refugee from Congo for over 19 years. Uh, now, in this camp of 160,000 people, there are uh, 150 faith communities or congregations in that camp. And to ignore them uh, is, is, is ignoring a tremendous resource for helping to promote the health of women and children. So we bring the faith leaders together. We provide a week of training on on newborn child health. We look at what scripture says about how we're to support women and children. And then we equip them, uh, the faith leaders, the, the pastors, as well as the congregations, to go out into the community 
to not only to provide health messages to the community, but also to address their spiritual needs and their emotional needs as well. And so when COVID happened, we were able to pivot our work with the, with the pastors to address the issues for COVID-19, uh, prevention messages, um, and, and what to look for are, as symptoms, um, how to keep your family and your community safe. And they're doing that in a very uh, unique and special way. Um, the messages are going out from the pulpit on Sundays, at Bible studies during the week, and then uh, some churches are even using their amplification equipment and, and broadcasting them in the marketplaces in order to keep people safe. Keep them safe. Pastors are saying to us, thank you for engaging with us. Um, we, we want to partner with you, and we're honored to partner with the church. Mm. Now, I think it's important on a refugee day that we not, not only are better informed about what the situation is, but what's one of the most important ways that we can help uh, medical teams minister in this way in the refugee camp you just described? Yeah, uh, first of all, I would say um, pray. Um, we need uh, the prayers of believers around the world. Um, I'm in contact with the, our doctors in, in Bangladesh, for example, and, and we have a Bible study every week. Uh, Dr. Robert is his name, and uh, he's actually Ugandan in Bangladesh, a medical team staff member from Uganda transferred to Bangladesh. Um, and we pray together, and he'll say, Joe, just have people pray. Um, also, though, you can, uh, you can give. You can go to our website at medicalteams.org and, um, and uh, contribute uh, to this organization. Walk with us, work with us, uh, partner with us, so that together uh, we can make a difference. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Joe DiCarlo, I so appreciate the work that you do and certainly the work of medical teams. And I would encourage our listeners to go to the website, medicalteams.org, where you can contribute to the ongoing work there. Uh, Tremendous work by Medical Teams International. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate it. And thank you so much, Georgine. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I haven't mentioned in this whole time that James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. In this hour, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. We'll also talk about what can and cannot be done in Multnomah County now that we have officially entered phase one as of today. I'm a little bit excited about it, although I have no idea what I would do differently, but freedom always feels good. Anyway, we'll get into that later in the program. First, to look at some of the day's headlines. Yesterday, President Trump made the following declaration regarding the burgeoning number of coronavirus cases. We won't be closing the country again. We won't have to do that. Well, Mr. Kudlow and Treasury Secretary, Secretary Stephen Mnuchin both said the United States could not shut down the economy again. Trump's comments came uh, after the White House economic advisor, Kudlow, had made that statement, uh, along with uh, Mnuchin. Uh, today's report, about 1.5 million workers filed applications for unemployment insurance for the first time last week, the Labor Department said Thursday. That pushes the running tally of those who have made initial claims over the past 13 weeks to a mind-boggling 457 million. I hope that uh, other states are doing better at actually getting unemployment checks to their residents. 
The Justice Department is proposing rolling back protections for big tech. And the president signed a bill protecting Chinese Uyghurs on the same day that John Bolton claims he gave President Xi Jinping approval on detention camps. Dick Durbin is given a token apology to uh, Senator Tim Scott after token remarks uh, made about uh, police reform uh, and his bill calling him a token, calling him a boy, and several other things. Where is the hue and cry among African-American leaders and outspoken leftists uh, as unacceptable Black Lives Matter? Yes, I too hear the crickets. Senate Democrats are silent when asked if they condemned Dick Durbin's uh, token comment. Again, crickets. Nancy Pelosi has poured $180,000 into Facebook ads while calling for advertisers to boycott the site. Hmm. Two standards. Um, Dumb and Dumber. Seattle adds concrete barricades to safeguard the militant group CHOP. Of course, the police aren't welcome there for safety's sake. A Cornell law professor has been censured by the dean after criticizing Black Lives Matter, the movement, because only one point of view is allowed on college campuses. The free exchange of ideas has been dumbed down. Olympia. Uh, Washington, Mayor Cheryl Shelby there's or Selby, who supported Black Lives Matter, gets her home vandalized during riots and calls it domestic terrorism. Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, said that she would issue an executive order that would take effect before the November election, ending Iowa's distinction as the last state to deprive all former felons of voting rights for life. And Notre Dame's law school has established a religious liberty clinic. Massive uh, spying on users of Google Chrome shows new security weakness. And border violence could spur India to uh, help U.S. uh, counter China. That border um, conflict is uh, quite worrying. Well, former Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolfe has turned himself in among the charges, felony murder, violation of oath by police officer, criminal damage to property in the first degree, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon times four counts, violation of oath by public office, uh, two counts and um, uh, aggravated assault. Over the last few days, a number of officers have called in sick. Andrew McCarthy points out the prosecutor has surrendered to the mob. The, to describe this as mere overcharging would be woefully insufficient, which is really very sad because in order for justice to be carried out, you have to charge an individual correctly. Otherwise, um, if the charges uh, don't fit, they will be acquitted. And I'm not trying to be clever with uh, rhyming. Well, the facts surrounding uh, Brooks are um, not just another example of police misconduct. The Los Angeles Times uh, ran an editorial on Tuesday titled Atlanta Police Killed a Black Man for Being Drunk at Wendy's. No, Mr. Brooks was not killed for being drunk. Rayshard Brooks was killed after resisting arrest, attacking two police officers, taking the officer's taser and shooting at uh, one officer with that non-lethal weapon. The decision by the Times editorial board to intentionally uh, omit this last fact is condemning proof of an effort to create a narrative that serves a social agenda. I think all the facts are important. It was a non-lethal weapon, and there's some dispute now as to whether or not he was actually um, running and if he did point the taser at the officer. These are things that we can speculate about, we can draw conclusions regarding, but until the facts are known, we need to leave it to the system to determine what actually happened. But there is video, so one can only hope. Senator Tim Scott is pressing hard for the Justice Act. His column in USA Today says this bill is truly the product of bipartisanship, including in the text is uh, Justice for Victims of Lynching Act, 
provision that has passed the Senate twice and seeks to make lynching a federal crime. I look forward to continuing the conversation with my Republican and Democrat colleagues because justice cannot continue to wait. Our voices cannot be silent. Our nation cannot be expected to hold its breath. In this moment, our silence as leaders and elected officials will be deafening. As Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Well, the bill has significant degree of similarity to the Democratic bill. And by the way, um, this senator, um, uh, Scott, is the only African-American senator, uh, Republican African-American senator. Again, it has a significant degree of similarity with the Democratic bill. Central to both packages is a beefed up uh, database on uh, use of force incidents, so officers' uh, records can be tracked even when they transfer from one department to another. It's uh, also a priority for Trump, who signed an executive order this week on a similar plan. What to expect? Juneteenth marks the end of slavery and a year of unrest. Well, Friday's celebrations will be marked from coast to coast with marches and demonstrations of civil disobedience. One would hope that would be limited, along with expressions of black joy in spite of an especially traumatic time for the nation. And like the nationwide protests that followed the police-involved deaths of uh, black men and women in Minnesota, Kentucky, and Georgia, Juneteenth celebrations are likely to be remarkable, uh, remarkably more multiracial. Texas Senator John Cornyn, in proposing legislation to make the day a national holiday, said this, the, the June 19th holiday is an opportunity to reflect on our history, the mistakes we have made, but yet how far we've come in the fight for equality and a reminder of just how far we still have to go. Well, Democrat mayor from Olympia, Washington, says the Black Lives Matter is like a domestic terrorist terrorist, uh, group. That is when they came to her house. Mayor Cheryl um, Selby of Olympia, the state's capital, uh, told the Olympian this week that she was really trying to process the news that her home had been vandalized. It's like domestic terrorism. It's unfair. It hurts when you're giving so much to your community. Maybe now she'll get it. Nancy Pelosi has ordered the removal of four portraits of Confederate House speakers, Democrats uh, Robert Hunter, Howell Cobbs, James Orr, and Charles Crisp from the Capitol. And Facebook is citing their uh, policy against organized hate, pulled the president's ad over inclusion of a Nazi-like Antifa symbol, which he was opposed to. I invite him to resign. That's Senator Tom Cotton rips John Roberts, Supreme Court over DACA, Resign and run for office as a politician. Well, Senate Democrats are moving to gut the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. We'll keep our eyes on that. And Europeans are working with the U.S. to restructure the World Health Organization. Fifty-five percent believe that uh, former Vice President Joe Biden potentially has early stages of dementia. And Politico agrees that polls are underestimating Trump just like they did in 2016. Senator Marco Rubio says that, or rather agrees, that polls are underestimating Trump just like uh, 2016 as well. Um, Susceptible to fraud, the federal government spent nearly $3 trillion on coronavirus relief. Oversight has been a mess, however. With regard to uh, to COVID-19, California has ordered people there to wear masks in most outdoor places, as is the case in Oregon, starting the 24th in a number of high-populated counties. And Florida has shattered their daily record from 3,207 new cases. Sweden, where no lockdown was ordered, becomes the second most infected country, and people would be mentally crushed by a second wave, according to psychologists. Well, there's much more that, uh, that can be said 
Um, but we'll uh, leave it at that. We're looking forward to uh, turning our attention to some of the lighter side of the news in just a few moments. And James Blend will join me for that. And also later in the program, we're going to talk about what you can and cannot do under Phase 1 in Multnomah County. And, of course, we've entered into Phase 1 today, holding back several other counties to Phase 1. We're now being connected to one another. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, in which we are now prepared to take a look at the lighter side of the news. But before we do that, you should know that the Oregon Health Authority is now reporting 206 new COVID-19 cases here and one additional death. According to KPTV, the um, Oregon Health Authority reported 206 new confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 cases in the state on Friday. They also reported that another person has died from the coronavirus, raising the state's toll to 188. The death reported on Friday was an 84-year-old woman in Marion County who tested positive on the 3rd of June, died on the 10th at her home. OHA said the woman had underlying medical conditions, which is generally always the case, but not exclusively. 206 new cases reported Friday were in um, Clackamas County, 23, Coos, uh, Deschutes, Douglas, Hood River, Je- uh, Jefferson, Lane, Lynn, um, Malheur, Morrow, Union, uh, and Wallawa, all from one to five uh, individuals. But the larger counties were in uh, Klamath with 12, Lincoln 31 new cases, Marion 20 cases, 49 new cases in Multnomah, 24 in Umatilla, and 17 new cases in Washington County. The Oregon Health Authority says the total number of cases in the state uh, now total 6,572. Uh, and again, the Oregon Health Authority Uh, reports 206 new COVID-19 cases, one additional death. Now, the important metric from all of this is how many of these cases will be hospitalized. Uh, We do have one additional death, as mentioned, but hospitalization is um, the metric. Now, is this a reflection of um, the increased number of tests? Again, these are all things to take into consideration, but these are the numbers as of just a few moments ago. Well, James Blind is going to join us. Uh, We're going to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news in the, uh, the time we have remaining for today's program. So welcome, James. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. Glad to be, you know, anywhere in, in, it, with you finally united in that great thing we call phase one. <laughs> That's right. You're in Washington County and you are all set to go into phase two, but you've been demoted and you're now linked to Multnomah County. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm not bitter about that, really. I promise. You've only brought it up to me off air about 15 times, but you're not bitter. No, not bitter, not bitter. I haven't been complaining <laughs> about it nonstop for the last three days, I swear. I promise. It hasn't been happening. <laughs> well, that's good to know. That's good um, to know. You know, yeah, one of the things I, that's I think really... I, I, I may have done a little bit too much because my, my daughter has picked up on it. She did say something, um, uh, you know, that uh, perhaps the governor was a little bit off in that uh, ob- in that uh, decision uh, in less intelligent words, but, you know, nonetheless, I, I blame myself. I blame myself. One of the things that I think all of us have lamented during the season is the fact that, uh, you know, people who celebrate at the end of a school year, for example, haven't had the graduations they had anticipated. But one class of high school seniors graduated on ski lifts 2,000 feet above sea level. I don't know if coronavirus, COVID-19 can make it that high, but... A commencement was taken to new heights. This was at Kennett High School. The class of 2020 held their graduation on top of Cranmore Mountain in North Conway, New Hampshire. 
about 2,000 feet above sea level. The mountain is only a few miles from the high school, so it was convenient. And uh, where its uh, ski team competes, well, the president and general manager of Cranmore Mountain Resort also happens to be a Kennett High School alumnus and a friend of the, the uh, current principal. So it was kind of a special place for everyone in the area, and they decided they were going to have uh, the graduation in that setting. The graduate would be flanked by their parents on the ski lift and others uh, of um, importance to them. Around 800 people attended the graduation. Uh, the uh, principal read the students' names, who then picked up their diplomas from a music stand uh, to ensure social distancing. Graduates and their guests went up uh, every few minutes, allowing for around five to seven empty chairlifts between each group. Uh, the school planned staggered uh, arrival times to avoid crowding, and this made the ceremony last a whopping 6.5 hours. But for, you know, 12 years of academic rigor, it was worth it for those those high school graduates, their families and friends who got to take place, uh, take part rather, in uh, witnessing the graduation of their seniors. So I thought that was kind of a cool way to go about it. I'm not sure we could use that, um, you know, that pod that goes up to OHSU? Uh, the, the, the tram, you mean? Yeah, the tram. There you go. The tram. You could use that. <laughs> I mean, it would take probably several days, but you could transport. Maybe not the same thing. No, probably not. I mean, but, you know, hey, it, it's certainly uh... creative. Creative. I know the, the other creative thing that I saw, I believe it was out in, uh, I want to say it was Seaside, which used that roundabout out there that's right at the oh, coast yeah. uh, for a, a quote-unquote drive-by graduation. But what a beautiful place. I mean, you know, obviously it's not the same by any means, but if you're going to do it, that's the place to do it. And it will be memorable. So Absolutely. Well, there aren't many tourists these days, but uh, in another part of the world, in Tanzania, uh, tourists learned the hard way why you shouldn't ever attempt to pet a lion. Now, why someone would assume at any moment that petting a lion was a good idea uh, is a puzzle to me, but the lion wasn't happy and let them know he wasn't happy. Well, uh, footage from Serengeti National Park in Tanzania shows a tourist in a vehicle getting up close and personal to a lion. Now, they're in the vehicle. The window is down, which is bad in and of itself. And the lion is facing away from the tourist, so its backside is close to the vehicle, and uh, its head is facing away. So they thought, oh, I'm going to reach out and pet the lion. Well, instead of being oh. content with photographing the bid cat, someone had to try and pet it through an open window. Okay, what could possibly go wrong? Open window, petting a wild lion. Well, as can be seen in the clip... It didn't go well. It couldn't have uh, been worse. The video is uh, from 2018, but went viral again after being reposted last week um, by a Maasai sighting with the caption, Still the dumbest tourist ever. So um, if you're thinking about traveling at some point in the future, and I think we all hope that's possible at some point in the future, uh, don't open the window and pet a lion. I don't know if you can hear that, but outside my window, our neighbors are moving one of those uh, very large dumpsters into place, and it sounds like the world is coming to an end. So if you're hearing something, and I'm not sure our mic can pick it up, um, it's, that's it's, what's happening. I, you know, outside. I actually looked outside my own window to see if it was happening you know, here. <laughs> the ground literally shook underneath my chair. But, but I, think I mean, as far as it being, you know, sounding like the end of the world, I, I got to admit it's 2020. It's got to be plausible. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No one questioned that possibility. Absolutely. No. 
Well, you know that uh, famous hot dog eating contest, Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest? Coney well, Island, July year. 4th. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to do it this year without spectators. Can I get a, a, a round of applause? I mean, who wants to see that, first of all? People stuffing food into their faces at a rate that's inhuman. Well, the organizers of this annual event um, in New York said that this year's event will go on as planned, but in a private location with no fans. Well, Nathan's famous and uh, Major League Eating announced Tuesday that the contest held annually, as you said, on the 4th of July in Brooklyn's Coney Island, will take place amid the COVID-19 pandemic at a private location in an area without any spectators, socially distanced. While the two 10-minute contests, one for men, one for women, will each only have five participants instead of the traditional 15 to abide by social distancing guidelines, and workers will wear masks and gloves during the event, and the competitors will all be tested for coronavirus before being allowed to compete. Last year's champion, of course, Joey Chestnut, and Mickey Sudo, they're both expected to compete in this year's event. The event will be aired at noon, July the 4th, on ESPN for anyone who insists upon seeing gluttony in full display. Oh, I don't think I'd want to see that. It's just ugh, stuffing I've that. I've never been able to watch mouth. it even on television. Mm-hmm. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that in some way or shape or form that that is a talent. Um, however, uh, I just, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Oh, they ate that many. Okay. I can, I can then just look at that in the abstract and be happy for them and move on with my life without ever having to give it another thought. Yeah, I'll pass on that one. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll tell you what people are doing with all their spare time while they're seeking records in the Guinness book of records. So that's uh, that's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend has joined me to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Later in the program, we're going to take a look at what can and cannot be done in Multnomah County as we have entered this very day into phase one. I'm so happy. I'm so proud. Well, people have a lot of time on their hands, and of course, looking for things to do with that time produces some rather interesting stories, like this one. A British runner set a Guinness uh, record for the fastest mile while blindfolded. Again, the question, why? Well, this British man has uh, been awarded a Guinness World Record for running a mile in 10 minutes and 11 seconds while wearing a blindfold. The 37-year-old from Hereford, England, said he received a certificate confirming his February run, set the Guinness record for the fastest mile blindfolded uh, for a male. Winter, who has been diagnosed with vision-impaired eye disease, uh, raised money for charity, Fight for Sight. I'm delighted that my Guinness World Record attempt has been approved. I want to prove to myself and to others with an eye condition that we can uh, could have done what I have done when we put our mind to it by raising money for Fight for Sight. I hope to help find the next breakthrough in treating sight loss conditions like his. Well, at least it had a purpose. He uh, actually, uh, he didn't blindfold himself for the sole purpose of the event, but he has an eye condition that restricts his vision and did it for good. So, okay, for Mr. Ashley Winter. Here's another one. Batman costume with 30 working gadgets has broken the Guinness record. A dedicated cosplayer in Maine. Okay, James, what's a cosplayer? I have no uh, idea. Cosplayer is is it's a term used in my sci-fi geek community as uh, someone 
who it plays in costumes. Uh, that means that they are, and when I say costumes, I'm talking they're very dedicated to the craft. It's not like those boxes we used to buy at the store with the rubber band on the back of it and then that type of thing. These are people who spend hours upon hours and money to make their the most realistic possible costumes for their favorite movies, shows, or books, or whatever. So it's short for costume playing, basically. Okay, and what's the purpose of the costume? You attend a, an event wearing it, or what, what's uh, the? Yeah, I mean, different types of events, but some people just do it for the, uh, you know, for the enjoyment of it. But they don't. Uh, the, usually, conventions or whatnot are where you would, where you would see people indulging mm-hmm. in that hobby. And like I said, it's okay. a very for some it could be a very time consuming, um, expensive hobby. I don't participate because I don't have either to spare. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate those who who clearly have put the work in. It, it's you know, it, 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 no matter how many events that we've gone to, it's always been there's a couple that go, "Wow, that's good." <laughs> well um, done. You know, it well, also helps when you actually look like you know if it's an if it's an actor or whatnot like you know, the. the helps if you look like the actor or actress and you really get a wow that is yeah. good but. well this dedicated cosplayer in maine broke a guinness world record when he added 30 working gadgets to his batman costume keith dinsmore of portland said he started dressing as batman for uh, pop culture conventions in 2013 and decided to attempt the guinness record in 2017 after learning it was held by julian checkley whose cosplay costume included 23 functioning gadgets. Well, Dinsmore successfully captured the record with 30 distinctive mechanisms, including a bala, no idea, a batarangs, butane torch, mini grappling hook, binoculars, a compass, fingerprint kit, tracking device, nylon rope, road flare, laser pointer, flashbangs, handcuffs, acetane or acetylene (laughs) cutting torch, and... Uh, and extended baton. The best parts of creating my cosplay is the uh, building process, especially when I'm creating something from my imagination and presenting the final product and process to the cosplay community, Dinsmore said. Well, congratulations, 30 working gadgets, breaking a Guinness record. But wait, there's more. An Idaho man with a uh, penchant for breaking Guinness World Records added another title to his name, by bouncing 16 ping-pong balls into a pint glass in one minute. David Rush, who has more than 150 titles to his name, said he decided to take on the record after discovering that both the one-minute and three-minute versions of the ping-pong ball record stood at 12. Well, he said he quickly discovered bouncing ping-pong balls into a single pint glass was more difficult than it sounded, requiring several attempts before he managed to sink 16 balls in one minute. He thought he had uh, set, had had uh, done 12, um, but then uh, he learned that he had, in fact, reached 16th. He was in disbelief, and now he celebrates a Guinness record, I guess making that his 151st. And then there's this. A Yemeni man living in Malaysia was awarded a Guinness world record for his unusual accomplishment, stacking three eggs vertically the Kuala Lumpur resident um, 20 years old was awarded the record for the world's largest stack of eggs when he managed to balance three chicken eggs in a tower formation (laughs) tower formation one on top of the other the record-keeping organization stipulated that eggs had to remain stacked for at least 
five seconds, and all three eggs had to be fresh and free from cracks and other uh, in their shells. Well, the uh, 20-year-old who had been teaching himself to stack eggs since he was six, I don't know why, uh, said that he found the trick was to identify each egg's center of mass and ensure they aligned while stacked. He said stacking the eggs took a high level of concentration as well as patience and practice. Patience is a good thing to develop, and now he has been rewarded for his efforts, sort of. And then there's this, a uh, restaurant owner in Spain broke a Guinness World Record when he spent 297 consecutive hours riding a stationary exercise bike. Ben Miles, no pun intended, owner of the San Amor restaurant uh, on the island of Mallorca, celebrated International Environment Day on the 5th of June by beginning his Guinness World Record attempt for the longest marathon on a static bike. Uh, He said his aim was to raise awareness of environmental causes. Sometimes I don't get the connection between what they're doing and what they're trying to communicate. He had to keep up a speed of at least 12 miles per hour during his attempt. He rode for a total of 12 days and 9 hours. He was allowed a 20-minute break every 5 hours to change his clothes and make a uh, take a brief nap and, of course, other things. Well, Guinness adjudicators were on hand during the entirety of the ride to ensure all of the record-keeping organization's protocols were followed during the attempt. Well, he uh, finished his record-breaking attempt by getting down on one knee, proposing to his girlfriend, Beatrix, who accepted. Again, a little bit odd, but people do what they what they want to do. Well, we're talking about things people do when they're, well locked up, so to speak, and uh, seeking Guinness World Records is one of them. Colette Holly has uh, made it her year-long mission to visit senior centers and sing to residents. She's not trying to break a record. She's just trying to bring a little joy. The Chicago-based performer hit a snag when the coronavirus started spreading, so she decided to bring in some heavy machinery. With nursing homes across the country prohibiting visitors, she rented a 30-foot cherry picker bucket truck to serenade residents from a safe distance outside the third and fourth floor windows of a Chicago Methodist Senior Services. With grateful nursing home residents clapping and waving and some even being brought outside to dance on the sidewalk, the inspiring Memorial Day concert soon found its way everywhere from TMZ to Mark Cuban's Twitter feed. The senior advocate uh, was featured in national news coverage and international headlines. She wasn't seeking all of that, although she is seeking to draw attention to the plight of seniors many of whom um, suffer from loneliness. In full disclosure, uh, Colette uh, is a professional uh, singer. She'd been singing to seniors and Alzheimer's patients across the country since 2014. When the pandemic hit, she realized she could no longer go inside, so she decided to do something extraordinary to bring a little joy. I thought that was a pretty sweet story. We're going to take a break. We've got... um, One final segment to wrap things up, and we'll let you know what you can and cannot do in Multnomah County now that we are in Phase 1. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, Multnomah County was released from its long bondage as of today. We are in Phase 1. So there is some reopening in Portland, Multnomah County. Now, James, I know you're in Washington County. You have aspired to Phase 2, but we're uh, are now linked with Multnomah County, so you have to languish with uh-huh. us in the early stages of Phase 1. I know this has been traumatic for you, but just try to hold it together. Oregon Governor Brown gave Multnomah County the go-ahead to enter Phase 1. 
today, which was supposed to have been last Friday, but you know she decided we're going to hold everything um, uh, for a week. Well, here's a recap of what that means for those of us living in Multnomah County and, well, Portland and I suppose other counties that are already in phase one that have been linked to Multnomah. The lifting of restrictions meant that um, we to curtail the coronavirus outbreak comes after three months of stay-at-home limitations on business and residences. We can have just a little more freedom. Uh, the governor wants Oregonians in seven counties, including Multnomah, to wear masks when they're going out in, in public and while in indoor public places like stores and offices. So that's mandatory for most people starting the 24th, which isn't that Monday, James? Is that the 24th? Uh, um, no, not quite. I think it's... When's the 24th? Uh, let's see. Yeah, twenty one, twenty two. Wednesday, Tuesday, well, anyway, like Wednesday, the 24th. I believe. Wednesday. Yeah. Yep, Wednesday uh, is the twenty fourth. Most places, or many places, I should say, uh, require masks already for customers, but that will be mandatory starting the twenty fourth. In restaurants, masks are not required while you're dining. Restaurants are going to reopen under certain conditions that mean they are going to ensure that the tables are spaced at least six. Excuse me, six feet apart so that at least six feet between parties is maintained, including when customers approach or leave tables. All employees have to wear face cloths or disposable coverings, uh, which employees or employers rather must uh, provide. Um, all on-site consumption of food and drinks must end by 10 o'clock p.m. I guess that's to give more time for uh, cleaning up in between uh Serving, a hair, nail, and other personal service salons such as massage therapies can reopen with limitations. They have to maintain a customer log, maintain six feet uh, physical distancing between clients, remove all magazines, newspapers, snacks, beverages from the waiting area, and face coverings by employees. And in some cases, clients are required as well. Now, gyms are also reopening. The city of Portland. Um, community and recreation centers remain closed, but private gyms and fitness centers can reopen with limits. They have to limit the maximum number of customers according to accordingly, enforce physical distancing and sanitation, um, view all phase one gym and fitness guidelines, which is rather lengthy. Um, so that's um, uh, that's on the list. And then with regard to gatherings in Multnomah County under these new rules, um, that includes churches and uh, other gatherings, um, Local gatherings uh, are limited to 25 people with local travel only as long as physical distancing can be maintained. Now, in some church settings, the numbers are higher, but generally speaking, uh, 25 people with local travel only. Residents should continue to uh, minimize non-essential travel, we're told, and Oregonians can go out for recreational activities such as walking and hiking as long as physical distancing is maintained. Portland parks remain open, although sport courts and playgrounds are closed. Most retail businesses that can maintain physical distancing are allowed to reopen uh, already, with some exceptions for personal services, uh, malls, fitness centers, which can reopen today in phase one. Indoor and outdoor malls can reopen with limitations. Remote work is still encouraged in phase one, hence we're all still at home, me, James, and Clark. Businesses that can maintain physical distancing have already been allowed to operate. Doctors and dental offices have been open with safety enhancements as well. Multnomah County Library branches offer sidewalk service at some locations, so you might check that out. Uh, and these, um, not all um, allowed under phase one of reopening. There are some businesses and activities that are not allowed. Recreational sports, pools, venues like movie theaters, bowling alleys and arcades, bars and restaurants um, 
uh, aren't able to remain open late, social, civic, faith-based gatherings, meetings uh, in groups larger than 25, concerts, conventions, festivals, live audience, sports, and so on. Uh, Visitors to long-term care facilities are still restricted throughout Oregon, uh, so you cannot go visit family members during this time. So that's what phase one looks like for Multnomah County and the other counties that have now been linked to Multnomah. Now, Father's Day is coming up this weekend, and I know for you, um, James, this is a challenging season. Your father is in a facility, and Uh you have not been able to visit him uh, for quite some time, and that's got to be difficult on a good day, but on Father's Day, that that's got to be uh, more painful. It's it's certainly rough, especially where he is at in the course of his illness. He's not really communicative at all at this point, nor does he recognize you know any family members. Um, so a phone call or a, or a FaceTime or anything like that, which are available to me, um, are basically useless and probably would do him more harm than good. It might do us some good, but it wouldn't. It would. It would be a setback for him because it's frustrating for him to know he should know who somebody is and doesn't. Um, so you know, it's you know, after much discussion over the past few months, we all decided that uh, we would just have to wait till we can visit him again. Uh, which, you know, obviously for his safety, um, you know, is as long as it needs to be. Um, and that's just how we're dealing with that. So he, he will be on in my thoughts and in my heart and on Sunday. But, you know, luckily I have the distraction of being a father myself um, and an amazing little girl who is so good at keeping me distracted from being <laughs> sad at the times when, when I'm most yeah. tempted to be. Yeah. Well, um, happy Father's Day to you and to Clark. Both of you are fathers. You have little girls, and both of you are doing a great job raising them. So congratulations. My father passed away several years ago now, and it's a painful time for me as well. But I'm grateful to celebrate other fathers in my family, my brother-in-law, Dwayne Stutzman, um, my brother, Danny Rose, and uh, my nephew-in-law, I say in-law just to give you some perspective. He's just my nephew from as far as I can, I'm concerned, Eve uh, Gachinia. So we're delighted to celebrate them and want to celebrate all fathers who uh, are raising their children, who are loving them, who are setting an example for them. Um, it can be a, a tough job, I'm certain, but we just want to honor all fathers who have stepped up and are doing just that on this uh, Eve, sort of Eve, Eve of Father's Day. And I have to admit, last weekend, uh, my habit is every Father's Day, there are certain men I send a congratulations note to and did that last weekend thinking that was Father's Day, only to learn <laughs> that it's actually this weekend. So I'm not quite sure what I'll do on Sunday this time around, but I uh, did want to just take a moment to say congratulations uh, to all of the fathers who are listening. You are needed, you're appreciated, and I just want to honor you, and that includes you, James. So, well, I appreciate that, Day. and you know, I, I say this of no self-serving manner whatsoever because I'm not mm-hmm. looking for, I'm not looking for the compliments. But I mean, especially if you know that if, you know fathers that are in your life that have been home and and you know doing a bit a bit different duty than we're used to. Uh, you know, it's been an interesting season for both parents. You know, mothers certainly have been running different roles, and you know, we're all doing strange things. And because of this, the situation we're in with the quarantine, that uh, you know, I think uh, it's one of those things that I think both moms and dads uh, have had uh, 
unique challenges, at least unique to them, um, in, in trying to be that for their child. It's easier to be there for them, but uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, it's tougher in other levels. Yeah, it's a challenge. Well, happy Father's Day to you and all of our father listeners. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Happy Father's Day, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.